Welcome to the Bill Kelly Show podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Hamilton is a chance to secure more transit funding from the provincial and federal governments. Ontario's Chamber of Commerce says the province should expand online alcohol sales. And Burger King already has its Impossible Whopper. Now it's revealing a new twist to its menu. Enjoy the podcast. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin the day today, while Hamilton continues to work on its $1 billion LRT that is going to stretch from McMaster University to Eastgate Square, the city, along with a few others, has a chance to secure even more transit funding from the provincial and federal governments. Starting now, as of yesterday, to be exact, and up until October 24th, 11 municipalities across the GTHA can apply for funding to support new transit projects through the Investing in Canada Infrastructure Program Public Transit Stream. That's one heck of an acronym. I-C-I-P-P-T-S. Not sure it goes by that, but it'd be fun to say. Uh, Those eligible municipalities that can apply for funding are Hamilton, Burlington, as well as Oakville, Milton, Halton Hills, Brampton, Mississauga, Peel Region, Toronto, York Region, and Durham Region. So basically the GTHA. And these projects could unlock up to $12.45 billion in federal and provincial funding. Uh, The province, by the way, is saying it will continue to work with the federal government and seek increased funding towards priority transit projects. So how each city is going to use this available funding remains to be seen. It also remains to be seen how much of this nearly $13 billion is going to be doled out and, more importantly, at least to us here, how much can Hamilton receive? So let's bring in our first guest of the day. His name is Dennis Guy, Manager of Customer Experience and Innovation at the HSR. And Dennis joins us on the program. Good morning, Dennis. Good morning, Rick. How are you? Not too bad. So how high did you jump when you saw nearly thirteen, <laughs> nearly $13 billion uh, possibly on the table? At least as high as a bus. <laughs> That's pretty high. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, very excited to hear this announcement. So there's nearly $13 billion available. Obviously, Hamilton's not going to get all of it, uh, nor is any other city going to get all of it. But $13 billion or a billion or, or half a billion, th- that money can go a long way to boosting our transit infrastructure, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> without a doubt, now, you know, our sites are firmly set on our 10-year strategy. And if this is some capital funding that can help us move that along, then... Um, you know, we'll go as far as we can with it. So what do we know about this funding pool? What can it be used for and how much can Hamilton potentially get? So our understanding is that it is for new capital projects. Uh, So infrastructure, you know, you're talking, say, a new facility uh, to house our buses or buses themselves, uh, and that some of the sort of rehabilitation may not come with as much uh, subsidy as or funding as as uh, brand new projects, but they are infrastructure based uh, in general. So you jumping as high as a bus would signify that we obviously need some funding. What could we potentially use this for? What would, would be on the priority list? Yeah, so top of the priority list for us would be a new, what we call maintenance and storage facility or a, a garage for to house our buses. 
uh, our current one-up one-upper James there isn't uh, isn't big enough to to house what we have or to expand further as uh, called for in the 10-year strategy. So that would be our primary focus of the funding. And then, of course, in order to expand and grow, we will need some more buses. So we would look to buses as well. We look to uh, technology advancement that would make a better customer experience, whether that be uh, some real-time information infrastructure at stops and terminals and shelters, uh, or even on the bus. We've seen some really cool things happening there in the industry. Uh, and then also we would look to some integrated mobility solutions, what we often call first mile, last mile, and that's how, how can we connect uh, ride share, bike share, even walking <clears throat> uh, to get to our system or where our lines are for that full trip experience. Regarding the garage, I'll start with there. Uh, it, mm-hmm. It's in a great location, but when you consider the LRT and its storage facility is going to be in the west end of Hamilton, would you possibly look at twinning operations with an LRT storage facility with a bus facility, or is it more likely we're just going to, going to expand what we have on Upper James? Well, that one I can't say for certain. Um I would say that you've you've thrown out a pretty interesting idea there that we haven't had a conversation on yet uh, in terms of twinning with an LRT facility. Right, and I only mention that because the garage seems to be a little out of the way. Uh, right, you know, right. it's it's south of Rymel Roads, you know, just south. But mm-hmm. in the same light, you you need a big space, obviously, for a garage that size. Right, and without a doubt, we would look to the. Uh, the efficiencies of the location. I mean, in, in HSR's history, we have been located uh, on Wentworth before, uh, and so <clears throat> uh, we haven't always been, I'll say, this far from uh, some of our core, uh, where our core hours and services run, and that would be taken into consideration as we look for a new site. We're chatting with uh, Dennis Guy, Manager, Customer Experience and Innovation at the HSR here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin in for Bill today. Uh, you mentioned new buses. Uh, could this possibly be, and I know the city has been uh, testing out uh, new technologies in terms of buses. Could, could we go further down this route? Uh, sorry, can you repeat that, Rick? The city of Hamilton is testing out new technologies, mm-hmm. i.e., electric buses. You know how uh, how sustainable are they? How efficient are they? Uh, is it the wave of the future? Should we be going down that route? So, could this funding be used in that light? We would hope so that we could use it to you know test new technologies and emerging uh, what we say powertrains on buses and things like that. Uh, it, it certainly, through our application, I, I think you'll see us submit that in a general sense, not knowing exactly where technology would go. This being a 10-year, uh, our understanding, a 10-year funding envelope, a lot could change in that 10 years. But the ability to be able to try and stay, uh, not necessarily ahead of the curve on that stuff, but with the curve, uh, we would definitely want to spend some money doing that. Whether it's a new or expanded garage, new buses, uh, how would this funding, no matter what, what, what the price tag is, how would, how would it affect Hamilton's 10-year transit strategy? We're, are we talking a major impact, a minor impact, somewhere in between? I would say uh, major impact. If you you know you take a look at our last few uh, trips through the budget cycle, uh, and in presenting the ten-year plan, it's this capital piece that we're still looking for funding for. So you know maybe I jumped as high as two buses uh, to know that this funding is for capital uh, projects and could uh, ideally fund the remaining capital requirement of the ten-year plan. How? big of a impact would this have on instituting a rapid 
uh, bus transit system? Or is that too, well, too much of a stretch? Well, uh, considering that's part of the 10-year plan, I, I, I think, again, this is, this is what we've been looking for in order to do that. What's the biggest challenge and the biggest opportunity in terms of uh, go-forward plan for the HSR to increase ridership, to get people, uh, get more people on buses? Uh, good question. Uh, probably not a simple answer to that, uh, but uh, for for us, we're taking a look at things like the experience in general and how it compares to other modes of transportation, and can we provide something uh, that for some will replace that for them if, they, if we want to hop on. I think another thing is as the city grows in uh, population and employment opportunities, uh, how we can better get people to those uh, to where they want to go. <clears throat> One of the things we're doing right now, um, if you haven't heard, is a, a large public engagement activity that we've dubbed uh, re-envision the HSR. And so through that, we're trying to learn what is it that people want out of the system? Where do they want to go? When do they want to go there? Uh, to, to see how we should be adapting our network to these changing needs because the needs have changed uh, <clears throat> over the past, well, quite rapidly in the last five to ten years and even over the last few decades. And so uh, that's what we'll be, uh, sorry, coming from this study, we'll have a better idea of some of the more specifics that we would want to spend the money on. Uh, I know this is um, uh, inviting these 11 municipalities to apply for funding. So how much will Hamilton apply for? Uh, so I would say still to be determined. I think now that it's uh, certainly a reality to us, <clears throat> we'll revisit what's required to fully fund the 10-year strategy, the remaining years of the 10-year strategy, and perhaps even look out further than that. Uh, but ideally, you know, oh, sorry, and then of course our our appetite for what uh, what funding we can provide as a municipality uh, and our own funding, because of course we are a partner in this, and so we'll have to cough up uh, some funding as well. <clears throat> so it'll be a matter of, uh, you know, staff crunching some of those numbers, going to council to see what the appetite is, uh, and what we can work on together. Uh, just one final question. I know ridership is around 20, 21 million fares per year. Is that uh, a number that can be increased over the next few years with more buses, with a better garage, with a better system overall? Yes, absolutely. I think, you know, in general, if we can provide more service, and certainly whether that means in uh, time, like providing more buses on existing routes with a, so you don't have to wait as long, or if it means investing in uh, expanding the routes into new areas, we will definitely see that number rise. And how many more buses can we see on the road? I mean, what would be an efficient number? Uh, in terms of in ter in term day, Rick? well, in terms of uh, not only boosting ridership but making it more accessible to people, you know, say in Ancaster or or wherever they're coming from or going to. Right. So, uh, good good question. I think with with the data that we've been collecting through the uh, public engagement, which we've partnered with Mac on that collection and analysis, uh, some of the questions have got uh, are really hitting home on what you've asked for us to be able to determine. Uh, what is sort of the frequency that people are looking for, which would then help us determine, oh, how many buses is that? How often do we have to go by a particular stop, which will allow us to calculate uh, what investment is required. Okay, I promise this is the last question. The, the deadline is <laughs> October 24th. When do you hope to make a submission to this uh, funding stream? 
Ah, great question. Um, having just sort of hit with it yesterday, I think now what you'll see is, you know, we're going to huddle as staff and we're going to take a look at how quickly can we get in front of council to, you know, to celebrate in one respect and then also to determine uh, how much we want to want to go for based on how much we're willing to to put into the um, to put into the pot. Dennis, thanks for the time. Uh, good luck uh, crunching the numbers, and uh, we hope to see a, a better transit system in this uh, city uh, in in the years to come. Well, thanks for having us, Rick. Dennis Guy is the manager of customer experience and innovation at the HSR, reflecting on. Uh, nearly $13 billion in federal and provincial funding that is now up for grabs starting as of yesterday and until October 24th that 11 municipalities across the GTHA, including Hamilton as well as Burlington, Oakville, Milton, Holton Hills in there, so is Toronto. Um, That's a lot of cash and that can go a long way. Now, how much of that is Hamilton going to get? That remains to be seen. We already have a billion dollars that is earmarked for LRT, uh, who knows, half a billion, quarter of a billion, somewhere in that uh, in that ballpark, I would assume, could be coming our way. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Ontario's Chamber of Commerce says the province should expand online alcohol sales, cut taxes for some wine producers, and bolster efforts to curb social harms as it liberalizes booze laws. The Chamber makes the recommendations in a report released yesterday entitled Refreshing the Sale of Beverage Alcohol in Ontario. It's about the future of beer, wine, cider, and spirit sales. The report says the province has a patchwork of policies and regulations it should modernize as it expands alcohol sales to new retail stores. So let's bring in the president of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, Rocco Rossi, and he joins us now on the Bill Kelly Show. Rocco, how are you? Great, great, Rick. And you? Uh, not too bad. This is a uh, my producer Liz printed out the document or the or the report, uh, and it's it's not slim. I'll say that there's a number of recommendations, and you go into detail on how it would benefit the province of Ontario. So overall, maybe we'll we'll get into. Uh, the report this way. Why make the recommendations that you have? Why is it important to do so now? Well, look, we we have a government that has explicitly campaigned on uh, the notion that they want to modernize uh, alcohol distribution in Ontario, uh, provide for more consumer choice and provide businesses with opportunities. And we then want to make sure as the Chamber of Commerce that Uh, as that thinking happens, that uh, we do it in a strategic way as opposed to piecemeal. One of the reasons the report is so thick, and there are 33 recommendations, including five about important um, uh, investments in in public health, so we do this in a responsible way, but part of it is to make sure that uh, we're consistent and fair across the board. I mean, I think about you know, the great craft brewing and cider scene in the Hamilton area. And did you know uh, that, um, you know, the folks at, at Grain and Grit, the craft brewers, are paying uh, less in taxes for a, a can of their craft beer versus the folks at Steeltown Cider uh, for cider is, is taxed at a, at a higher level, and yet both uh, use Ontario agricultural ingredients, both 
uh, Ontario employees, both largely selling in the Ontario uh, market. So there should be, an, and both products at around, you know, sort of 5% alcohol, uh, so should be treated uh, fairly. And that's just one of, of the 33 areas as we uh, modernize the system. Hence the, the, the patchwork of policies and regulations that we have right now. One of the recommendations that, that is probably getting the most publicity, and, and probably rightfully so because we're not doing this right now, is to allow beverage uh, alcohol producers uh, the ability to sell their products online in that e-commerce marketplace and using third-party uh, processes uh, or, or, or companies to process those payments. Um, how big of a jump do we have to make to get there? Well, um, look at, the, as you know, we, we, we're now selling cannabis online in the province of Ontario. Um, but this is really a, most important for the small and medium-sized producers in Ontario. It's really about the craft industry because the, the big guys, uh, they have the marketing muscle to get their brands in front of, of people. But by being able to use uh, online platforms like eBay or Amazon or Shopify, the small and medium-sized uh, producer can get their product in front of the uh, consumer. And consumers, as we do with banking and with lots of other shopping that we do, uh, can use um, that online option uh, for purchase of, uh, of uh, beverage alcohol certainly within the province to begin with, and then as we uh, eliminate the very antiquated interprovincial trade barriers that we have, hopefully uh, people across the country will be able to uh, order up their grain and grit. So what would be the threshold to um, not allow those, hence big producers of alcohol, um, to be allowed on the Internet while, while you know enabling those who don't produce as much or the or the revenues aren't as high as some of the big players what what would be that line we we don't want to be we don't want to be exclusive and prohibitive uh it's going to be there we just think that for the small and medium-sized players it's a it's a bigger boon uh and they'll be more interested because they don't have as many retail touch points as the big producers have already um you know there are other things again along the fairness side uh, farmers markets today you can go to a farmers market and purchase uh, an Ontario produced wine uh, but you can't uh, pick up uh, a craft distiller or uh, a craft cider or beer uh, without special licensing that uh, strikes me as unfair and inappropriate uh, you can go to uh, a wine and food trade show for instance and be tasting uh, wine, um, along with uh, uh, local food production, etc., and yet not be able to buy uh, a case of the wine that you like uh, when you're there. You'd have to then go uh, and find an LCBO to to purchase it. That strikes me as not consumer friendly and and not friendly to to businesses who. Uh, it's not just about the beverage alcohol, it's the whole hospitality industry and, and tourism as a whole. You have regions in the province like Prince Edward County or Niagara um, where they've been able to turn the stories around either their local wine production or craft brewing or distilling 
uh, into tourism destinations and really help to build out regional economic development across the province. We're chatting with uh, Rocco Rossi, President of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, uh, out with a report that suggests the province should expand online alcohol sales, cut taxes for some wine producers, and uh, bolster efforts to curb social harms as it liberalizes booze laws. And on those health impacts, whenever we talk about expanding um, uh, sales or making alcohol more available to people, there's always that other side of the story, those health risks or health impacts in this equation. And I'm sure groups like Mothers Against Drunk Driving and others out there will say, you know, let's pump the brakes on this. We're moving too fast. Look, it, it, we're very concerned about, about that. We want to do this responsibly. Our members are keen to be part of the solution, not uh, part of the problem. That's why there are five uh, recommendations in the report about more investment uh, and working with uh, stakeholder partners like public health, like the Ontario Medical Association, um, uh, to ensure that we're getting messages around responsible use out. Ontario, on a per capita basis, has roughly half of the retail touch points that the average uh, Canadian province has, uh, and yet we don't have half of the issues and half of emergency. Uh, There are other issues at play, and education and awareness around guidelines and around moderate use is, is absolutely critical. We want uh, we want people to uh, have an enjoyable experience as we're uh, helping our domestic producers grow and prosper in the province of Ontario. One of the other recommendations is calling on the government of Ontario to create a new alcohol license that would allow for private, independent wine stores. Is there a demand for this? Uh, there absolutely is, because wine in, in particular and, and, and craft products are not just about, you know, give me the lowest price and I just want the color red. There's a whole, you know, story around it and romance around it that uh, the private stores have the, the time and resource and expertise to be able to, to do. You certainly get uh, some of that within uh, the LCBO today. Uh, and uh, it's something that um, uh, certainly uh, is available in many other jurisdictions across Canada and in the United States and, and uh, around the world, um, and we think would be very beneficial, uh, particularly for our, our domestic wine industry. Getting really down into the nitty-gritty, I mean, you guys have really thought about everything. Uh, Another recommendation is revisiting the requirement that mead producers must have 100 honeybee colonies each year and reduce the number to 50 bee colonies to align with the AgriCorp requirement for commercial insurance coverage. We're really digging deep into what should and shouldn't be allowed here. Uh, Again, we want to be strategic. We want to look at it not piecemeal, but across the whole side, and and really look at what makes sense and and what doesn't. I mean, the whole point of having the the colonies is to ensure we have uh, local ingredients. If if uh, that that local meat producer is going to be um, uh, is going to benefit from the overall system, and and you know, do we want them to be beekeepers or do we want them to be mead uh, producers and excellent at that so long as um, 
so long as they would be using uh, Ontario honey, uh, we'd, we'd, we'd certainly be happy. But uh, it did seem odd that uh, you need uh, 50 for uh, effectively crop insurance, and yet there was this old uh, regulation around 100 colonies. So we just wanted to line it up with uh, insurance. But quite frankly, uh, you could see that move towards uh, simply working with uh, more on Ontario beekeepers and, and uh, honey producers and have this as another way uh, for them to expand their business. Rocco Rossi is the president of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. He joins us now on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick in for Bill uh, today and all week long. So this uh, report was issued yesterday. What kind of response have you received from the provincial government? Well, uh, we had the great privilege of uh, presenting it to the Minister of Finance uh, yesterday morning, and uh, he uh, thanked us, congratulated us on the on the report, and certainly um, the government is uh, is looking for ideas and how to uh, expand responsibly, how to give um, consumers more choice, and how to make Ontario open for business, and this is. Um, this is a $10 billion industry in Ontario. It generates $5 billion in taxes to, uh, to the Treasury to help pay for uh, the services we all, we all want in our society. And uh, there's an opportunity uh, to grow that domestic share, to grow uh, our craft uh, industry by taking ideas from other jurisdictions uh, you know, BC uh, came up with a graduated taxation scheme for its craft distillers in 2013, and uh, it took its 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 local craft distiller industry from six um, uh, to uh, from seven to 60 uh, today, uh, more than quadrupling their uh, their volume and their share. Uh, in uh, in the market and creating lots of jobs and economic activity along the way. We think that opportunity exists here in Ontario as well. Uh, last one for you. I know there was a multitude of recommendations in the report. If there was just one, or, or what would be the most important one that the government should adopt? Look, we need to look at this strategically versus piecemeal, and uh, that's why we would uh, we would encourage... Uh, looking at it as as a whole, because part of the problems we've run into and the inequities have been created is because people have then come back and said, let's just do one thing or let's just do this thing over here. And uh, it, it, it's a little bit like, uh, like Django. You try to take that one piece out and the whole house collapses. So uh, we would we would prefer that we think about this holistically and in balance with the public health investments that are necessary as well. Rocco, really appreciate the time. Uh, congratulations on compiling this report. There's a lot of good stuff in there, and, and good luck getting it adopted. Well, and uh, for those who want to read more, OCC.ca, refreshing the sale of uh, beverage alcohol in Ontario. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Rocco. Thanks so much. Rocco Rossi, President of Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Uh, you can read the report uh, online, as he suggested. There's, um, <laughs> It's a good bedtime reading, that's for sure. But there's a lot of important stuff in there. Uh, the most intriguing to me is the online sales aspect. Uh, would it lead to more underage drinking? Uh, the health impacts certainly are there. 
But yeah, uh, removing the patchwork system that we have in this province, there's so many different rules, whether you're producing beer or cider or whatever, uh, that it should be modernized. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Burger King already has its impossible Whopper, you know, the meatless plant-based craze going around uh, really the world most notably for us here in Canada and down in the U.S. But aside from the impossible Whopper, it's now revealed a new twist to its menu. Now, at this point, it's only in Sweden, but man, oh man, is it ever interesting. Following the plant-based burger craze, the restaurant tra- chain has uh, introduced two plant-based meatless sandwiches at its restaurant in Sweden. One's called the Rebel Whopper. The other is the Rebel Chicken king but here's the twist and to explain the twist let's bring in bill murphy jr he's a contributing editor to inc magazine and he joins us now bill how are you hey good morning i'm doing great how are you not too bad so uh, we know that burger king has the impossible whopper but in sweden they have the rebel whopper the rebel chicken king but this is part of a 50 50 menu that is kind of strange tell us about it Sure. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. Like you say, they have a plant-based Whopper and a plant-based chicken sandwich, and they came up with a promotion where you can go in and say, "I'd like a Whopper, please," and they will give you a sandwich. And there's a fifty-fifty chance. Maybe you got the meat Whopper. Maybe you got the plant Whopper. They don't tell you. Or same thing with the chicken sandwich. I'd like a chicken sandwich, please. Great. No problem. Here you go. And fifty-fifty. Maybe they gave you chicken. Maybe they give you plant, and you don't know. And the, the, I guess, the strategy behind this or the thinking behind this is you have to download the Burger King app to then guess which you think you've eaten or have taken a bite out of and then uh, scan the box and guess which one you have. Yep, that's exactly it. It's, uh, they're making it a little bit of a game and uh, trying to drive home what they think is the, uh, the idea that uh, you know most people can't actually tell the difference between whether it's meat or plant-based meat substitute. So yeah, that's what you do. You, um, you download the app to your phone and you scan the box and then you have to guess, you have to tell them which one you think it is. Do you think you got plant or do you think you got meat? And then it'll tell you whether you're right or not. It's very interesting, and I love your article on uh, Inc.com, uh, you know, describing how this could come about. And if you're a, a vegetarian, you might be in a world of hurt if you've suddenly realized you've actually eaten real meat. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? I mean, uh, I'm not a vegetarian, but I'm certainly happy to try a plant-based, you know, I, I, I like veggie burgers. I like real burgers, too. But um, but it would be the opposite, right? If I were a, a strict vegetarian or a vegan, uh, I probably would not be willing to take the 50-50 shot. That maybe <laughs> I'm going to accidentally eat meat. But it's yeah. probably not going to agree with you very well, especially if you haven't been eating meat for a long time. Now, Burger King says it's going to release um, all, all the all the answers by the end of the summer, I think. Uh, how do you think people are going to do? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I mean, it's funny to me, too, that this is Sweden, which, you know, I've heard lovely things about, but I've never been. And, uh, you know, I don't even think this would fly in the United States because some of the, in fact, some of how I even heard about this was uh, uh, people on Twitter talking about how this was un-American, et cetera. You know, we, we'll try it, but let us make the choice. So it's interesting to me that, you know, uh, uh, it's just a different culture that, that, that uh, uh, although the, the TV commercials that they have are pretty funny, <laughs> yes. uh, they wouldn't fly in America. They got some language that would not get past our, uh, our uh, you know, 
the sensors. The sensors, yeah. Yeah, what's uh, with the F bomb in one of them? <laughs> I know, it's interesting, right? Well, I guess it's, uh, you know, you and I could probably uh, say Swedish curse words back and forth and nobody would even know. So it may be <laughs> kind of the same thing, right? <laughs> You're probably right. You're probably yeah. right. Uh, and, and, and supposedly this is going to expand, or at least Burger King is going to expand this across Europe. They're going to expand the Rebel uh, Whopper and Chicken Sandwich across Europe. And, of course, I don't know, uh, in the U.S. anyway, we have the Impossible Burger, which honestly has been a big seller for the burger chain. Mm-hmm. And, um, and now the interesting thing is that Burger King accidentally, they say, I'm sure it was accidental, but they accidentally delivered uh, Impossible Burgers to people who'd asked for the regular meat Whopper down here and, uh, uh, you know, sort of accidentally had this... Uh, uh, a similar challenge, uh, I think, on Long Island. And, uh, yeah, people said, uh, you know what, they tasted pretty good. So, um, uh, yeah, I think this is probably where the future is going. Interesting. And, and even more so, maybe, is that McDonald's hasn't really jumped on this yet, at least. Yeah, they certainly haven't done any uh, 50-50 menu challenges that I, that I know of anyway. Um, but it's an interesting thing. You know, there's a big rivalry, of course, between Burger King and McDonald's, although McDonald's is actually much bigger. But, um I, uh, a lot of this also, you know, the, the meatless thing is interesting, but also they're the, the burger chains really want you to download their apps. They want to have that direct relationship with you as a, as a uh, customer. So I found it interesting that, you know, at the end of the day, this is Sweden, but this is, they, you have to download the app to do it. And I wrote about a previous promo that uh, Burger King did where they would sell you a Whopper for one penny, but only if you downloaded their app first and ordered it from the parking lot of a McDonald's. I thought that was genius, you know. <laughs> so what is the you know, de- what's the deal with downloading the app? Is there is there ad dollars attached to that? Is there some financial benefit for Burger King or or others who go that route? Yeah, I think that I think there's a giant financial benefit. It's um, you know, it's creating a direct digital relationship with a customer and you know, they'll do obviously they do a lot of advertising, you know, if you use your search on Google and you're getting ads from McDonald's if they think you're a customer, a potential customer. Um, they're running TV ads, of course, constantly. They've been doing that for, what, 60, 70 years now. Um, and they're running ads on Facebook and whatnot. But basically, once they get you to download the app, they build that direct relationship with the customer. It costs them ne- next to nothing to communicate with you. Um, and that's, you know, from maybe a dollar or two per communication on something like Facebook or Google when they actually get, you know, when you get down to brass tacks versus, um, you know, ultimately almost free via their own app. So they'd much rather have... Uh, have people ultimately download the app. Uh, we're chatting with Bill Murphy, Jr., contributing editor at Inc. Magazine here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick, in for Bill. Uh, just hopped onto the website as well. I, I love the simplicity of it, but uh, one of the highlights, and I don't want to jump off topic, but one of the highlights of this uh, website is The Joy of Quitting, a book that is coming out or is or is out now. Yeah, that's a work in progress. That, um, you know, that came, uh, it's a work in progress, something I'm working on, but I... Um, uh, boy, this is, this, is, this is a different topic entirely. But uh, so I used to I used to be a lawyer before I did this. Oh, okay. Technically, I still am a lawyer, and uh, I once quit a job after one day as a lawyer. It's kind of this big moment. Um, and you know, to make a very long story short, I told nobody about it for ten years, and then once I was writing for Inc., I wrote a story about it, and then uh, that got picked up by. Um, the CBS Sunday morning show down here. So I did a long interview about, you know, kind of having the courage to quit things. 
And, uh, and you know what's funny is uh, we have the, um, the Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon apparently did a little clip about it that they didn't even tell me, but they put, so now I can, you know, tell my mom I've been on the Tonight Show. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the but book about, is the book but about I, quitting after like one day? Um, the book is, honestly, the book is about learning to say no uh. and learning to quit things. Um, you know, it's kind of like that, uh, uh, that thing about, um, this is a gross analogy, but they say if, if you if you dropped a frog into boiling water, it would jump out right away. But if you slowly raise the temperature on the water, it sticks around. Because <laughs> uh, you know, I think a lot. I, I I'll tell you, between the article I wrote, I've written a couple actually on this subject, and the TV shows and everything. Every day, it seems I get an email or a LinkedIn message or something from somebody saying, "Hey, I'm trying to decide if I should quit my job. What do you think?" <laughs> wow! And it just tells me there's a lot of people out there that. Um, you know, they, they feel like they're calling us something else. So it's really about, you know, uh, developing the, um, not just the courage to quit, because honestly quitting isn't always the right decision, but developing the wisdom to kind of work through these questions ahead of time so that, um, you know, you can actually make a decision and feel good about it and then move on to the next thing. Very Both in jobs, but in other things too. Yeah. Well, the, the, the title caught my eye for sure, and I thought I'd uh, ask you a few questions on it. Uh, Bill, good luck with the book. Appreciate the time today, and uh, who knows, maybe this 50-50 menu will hit North America uh, sometime soon. Yeah, great. Great talking with you. We'll get a burger sometime. You got it. Uh, Bill Murphy, Jr., contributing editor at Inc. Magazine, joining us about uh, Burger King's new 50-50 menu. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.